I was recently reminded about um, how desperately we as, as a people, as individuals, and as a church need the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I want to make something clear. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not a feeling. He's, he's not a, an ex, even an experience, though he can be experienced. The Holy Spirit is the one triune member of the Godhead, the, the God who is now in us. Jesus came and was Emmanuel. He was God with us. And when he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. And the Holy Spirit will, the promise of the Father will be sent. And he breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And they became indwelt with the living Spirit of God, that their bodies now were not their own, but they were temples of, of God in the Spirit, the Bible says. And then on the day of Pentecost, Jesus told them, you shall wait until you are endued with power from on high. Power for what? Uh, falling down, rolling over, barking like animals? No. Power to be my witnesses, to testify of his truth. And it's amazed me to think, to see how far we've come, that we have uh, somehow imagined a, a church movement, a work of God without the power of God. Not we, but just in general, how much we try to do on our own. And I was reminded of this this week, and as we sang this song, it just reminded me again of all that the Spirit wants to do in our lives, how He wants to call us out, how He wants to empower us to be His witnesses, how He wants to touch our lives in a way that transforms and changes us. And Jesus made it clear that if we are good fathers and good mothers, and uh, we being evil, that is, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does a father want to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, who believe, who want to receive his power? Uh, I know this is kind of out of left field, but I, uh, it's good that I get reminded of this frequently, that um, all the planning in the world, all the strategy in the world, while it's important and it's good and it's necessary, uh, will not accomplish kingdom work unless we are under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let, let's just, um, let's pray together, if we would, for the Holy Spirit to touch our lives. Perhaps, you, perhaps you're in a place where you've never really even conceptualized or thought, you know, I love Jesus, I'm living my Christian life, that's what it's about. But perhaps you haven't recognized that there's another dynamic that God wants to add to your Christian existence. Service to him, boldness and witness, supernatural Talks things happening in you and through you and around you to see Jesus magnified and glorified in these treacherous and perilous times that we live in. If so, I wanna encourage you to ask by faith this morning for the Holy Spirit to touch your heart, to touch your life, to empower you anew and afresh. Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, and, which is dissipation. Don't be under the influences of the world, but be ye filled, continually filled 
with the Holy Spirit. And so as we sung that song, uh, I just would like us, and again, this is not under obligation, so if this is not something you feel the, uh, like you want, that's between you and God. But I'm convinced that this church won't ever fulfill its kingdom mission completely and entirely and all that God has envisioned for it if we do not continue to ask for his power to be upon us. So if you would lift your hands with me as we pray. Father God, you have sent us the promise of your spirit. You poured it out on a church that was waiting on you 2,000 years ago. And a power came upon them. It says Peter stood up in the power of the Holy Spirit and preached the gospel that saved thousands of lives that day. And so, Lord, we just as a church come to you as we've asked you in the song to Holy Spirit to come and be present. We don't need to feel anything. We don't need to have any... Um, Magic, that's a good word, any magic to happen. What we do is we come to you by faith, believing that you want to give your children everything we need for life and for godliness, to be a witness for Christ. And so, Lord, we confess that we are, have fallen short. We confess that we have sinned. We confess that even this very day, we, we have areas of our lives that are not yet under your control. And we say as a church, as individuals, uh, forgive us, Lord. We submit to your power. We submit to your authority and rule in our lives. And we ask you for a fresh empowerment of your spirit upon us, a supernatural dynamic to move upon us and through us for the glory of your name. Lord, would you pour out your spirit in this church? Would you draw people from far and wide who need the hope of Jesus? And may you open our hearts to the ways that you want to use us and touch us and heal us and strengthen us in these times. And so, Lord, we come with one heart, with one voice, believing in faith that we will have that which we have asked of you because you desire to give it so freely and abundantly. So, Lord, empower our lives with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Sing it out. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. God, we praise you. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us and for the goodness of God that you have showered upon our lives, for your blessings, for your mercy, for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would touch and speak to our hearts today, that your word would become alive to us. Lord, that you would move and work among us to touch every life and every heart. We give you praise, God. Please go before us. Please continue a work that we can't do on our own. And we'll give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, all God's people agreed and said, amen. 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 Good morning. You guys can have a seat. Welcome.
Hello. Uh, I'm here to uh, sign up for the nativity scene setup. Jay, my man, welcome. My name's Caleb. You sure? Uh, you don't look like a Caleb. I have known some Calebs. So I show up, it's my first day, and there's a bunch of camera stuff, and they hook me up to this thingy right here, and they say this is a dead cat. It looks nothing like a cat. I don't know what's going on. Caleb, my man, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, so yeah, I just moved to St. Joe area, you know, and uh, joined mm -hmm. Grace, and yeah. I really love what I'm seeing. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. I decided I should volunteer, and uh, Here's the baby Jesus you asked for. Oh, perfect. Uh, it's weird. Last year, I remember, seeing a lot more hair on there. Yeah. <laughs> It'll work. It'll work just fine. Um, but there is this one thing, though, that uh, a couple years ago for my birthday, I was yeah, invited to for Chuck sure. E. Cheese. Uh -huh. Yeah, I love it. Uh, mm. My uncle took all my tickets. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, cool. Oh, that's That's amazing. where all my trust issues come yeah. from. Yeah, I'm gonna stop you right there, Caleb. I uh, think you're a good fit. Welcome to the team. Well, he does a lot of crazy stuff in the office, so this didn't really surprise me much. I'm just trying to understand where I'm supposed to find a baby doll with hair on it. Yeah, I uh, picked up this outfit at uh, the thrift store, uh, $1. Uh, this was actually 50 cents, and uh, $1.50 in the whole getup. This year's gonna be a bang. Could be a bang. <laughs> so there's that um, happening. <laughs> Uh, I love our creative team. They're so creative. <laughs> uh, we do. We're going to be setting up uh, our annual Krug Park Nativity. We'd love for you guys to join in and be a part of that. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun this year. We've got a lot of uh, great stuff coming up for Christmas that we'll be announcing in the near future. So keep your ears open for that. But on the top priority of announcements, and this is coming a bit late, so you're going to need to maybe uh, scramble a little bit to make this a priority, but I want to encourage you to do so because you don't want to miss it. If you are a lady in the house today, please raise your hand. Ladies, raise your hand. Okay. Um, I'm just making sure you're all ladies who's raising your hand right now. Okay. All right. Um, we have this Saturday a simulcast uh, live uh, broadcast coming in. We're going to be doing an all-day Keep the Faith apologetic simulcast next Saturday. This Well, this coming up Saturday with Alyssa Childers. If you haven't heard of her, she recently wrote a book, uh, Another Gospel. She is combating the progressive gospel, the progressive Christianity that is in infiltrating the church, and she is going to be uh, giving an all-day simulcast about what it means to be grounded in the Word of God uh, as a woman, and ladies, you don't want to miss this because this is critical at this junction in time uh, for, for you to be rooted, not in emotionalism, not in every wind and wave, a uh, wind of doctrine that's passing through, but right grounded in the word of God. And this is going to be a great time together in order to um, really make that a priority in your life. And so that's going to be $5. You can sign up online at our website, graceontheweb.org under events, events and registration. 
And uh, it's $5 per lady or $10 per family. So you can sign up and bring friends, bring a few friends, all for $10 if you'd like to do that. If you know someone from another church or someone that might enjoy hearing this, make sure you sign up as soon as possible so we can get a final head count of who's going to be uh, becoming. So husbands, it's a good opportunity uh, for you to to man the house on that Saturday and let your wife go get some time away and get grounded and encouraged in the word, and that should be a great time. So please do that today. Don't forget, as soon as you're able to, sign up for that online. Uh, tonight is our second Sunday of prayer and worship, so we encourage you to come back at 6 as we'll be together seeking the Lord uh, as a church. With that being said, we are back in the book of Hebrews. So if you would grab your Bibles out, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. Um, if not, the, we'll, we will post the verses on the screen, but there's nothing like having your Bible in hand. So turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and when you turn there, please stand as we read the Word of God this morning. I'm really looking forward to that event. I'm not a lady. I won't be here, but I, I'm, I think it's going to be good. Uh, great thing to bring your high school daughters to as well, by the way, if, if you get a chance. That's going to be good. Well, Hebrews chapter 1, we left off at verse 4 last time we were together. And so I'll read the even-numbered verses. And if you would please join together for the odd-numbered verses, we'll be reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14 this morning. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Amen? Amen. You can be seated. We've been in a series that we've just started in the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And of course, talking about the preeminence, the excellence of Jesus above every other thing. That in all of the world, in all of religion, in all of created things, in all things seen and unseen, there is nothing other, nothing better, nothing more than Jesus. He is the pinnacle of everything that we need, that we could hope for, that we could want. 
Jesus is not another rabbi. He's not just a radical. He's not a revolutionary. He is the son of God. God made man to take away the sins of the world and to offer the hope of eternal life to all those who would come to him. Well, the author here in the book of Hebrews is dealing with an audience who comes from a Hebrew tradition, the Jewish religion. They were rooted and established and grown, so to speak, in the roots of the Old Covenant, the law of Moses. And when they finally came to know Jesus as their Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament, things got hard for them in their community. They were ostracized. They were ridiculed. They were uh, persecuted. And they were being tempted by those around them. Why don't you just come back? You don't need Jesus. You have the safety net of Judaism. You have the old covenant. You have the law. You have the prophets. You have the sacrificial system. Why do you need Jesus? And so systematically, the book of Hebrews goes verse by verse, concept upon concept, to establish the reality that Jesus is better than all of those things. That you need Jesus because he is, as we saw last week, the voice of God. That in times past, God spoke through the prophets to his people. But the prophets were merely like puzzle pieces that Jesus ultimately put together. And you see the complete picture of God's plan of salvation. Everything God wants to communicate to humanity is found in the person of Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead. Well, the author continues to delve into the depths of Christ's magnificence, writing again to the Hebrew audience who is being tempted to move back, go into apathy, go into apostasy even. And so he presents them with a clearer picture of who Jesus is. And I, and I love this right off the bat because it tells me that the best defense for us today against apathy or apostasy is to be confronted with a clear image of who Jesus is and what he's done. You know, I feel like we can get so sidetracked and off on so many spiritual rabbit trails today. I mean, so many things, even in the spiritual sense, to get distracted by and to get, try to focus on when the Bible calls us to have a clear picture of Jesus at the forefront of our hearts and our minds. Last time we, we were together, we saw that God communicates his truth and his creative power and his nature and his authority and ultimately his victory over sin in the person of Jesus. If you're taking notes, the title of this morning's message is that Jesus has the better title. Last week we saw that Jesus had the better voice, or two weeks ago, excuse me. Today, Jesus has the better title. And we might ask, well, what's the big deal about a title? What's the meaning of a moniker? Well, titles convey something about authority, don't they? I mean, you don't, if you walk into a business and the person up front greets you and says, I'm the CEO of the company, there's a different interaction you have with that person all of a sudden than if, you, if they said, I'm, I'm just a clerk. Uh, the following scenario has never happened to me. But if you've ever been on the phone with a representative of a company that sold you a faulty product and they're giving you the runaround and you become frustrated, what do you say? Let me speak to your manager, right? You want to go up the chain. You want to get to the top so that you can have some sort of meaningful conversation that might actually get things changed. The title, manager, makes, makes, gives them the authority to make the changes needed. Well, for the Jewish believers who were being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, 
it was essential for the author to establish Jesus in the place of highest authority, has the highest designation. There is none higher than him. He is higher than the prophets, yes. Not only that, but in the rest of this chapter and next week, we see that he's higher than even the angelic beings. Many scholars believe that the early Hebrew church was dealing with a skewed theology of who Jesus was and even a skewed theology of angels, angelic beings. Perhaps the thought was floating around in theological circles that Jesus was merely an advanced uh, angelic being, some sort of physical representation of an angel. We know for sure that there was a what's called a Gnostic doctrine, a Gnostic heresy that was floating around during that time as well, that taught that Jesus was in spiritual form. He was sort of a demigod, a lesser god, kind of a, a god between God and angels. Perhaps there was even an overemphasis on angels, where angels were being placed in a in an unbiblical light, or even being worshipped as though they were more than they really are. And it's interesting because Satan has no new tactics. All these things still exist today. Have you noticed that there is an over-fascination sometimes with angels? You know, everyone wants to be touched by an angel. Well, the author here says it's better to be touched by Jesus, who created the angels, because he has the greater title. He is, what we'll learn here today, the Son not an angel. Continuing the same thought from the first three verses, the author now plunges into identifying to a greater degree the nature of Christ. Who is he? And why is he deserving of our worship and of our lives and everything that we have? Well, in the Jewish context, to build this up, you have to understand that the Jewish mind had a order of created things. There was the animal kingdom, then there were humans, then there were angels, and then there was God, the uncreated one, the source of all of the things above. So there was a a created order, animals, people, and God, and it's true. Angels were highly revered. For example, the angels we're told, were witness of the divine creation. In Job chapter 38, the Bible says, when God was laying the foundation of the earth, the sons of God, which is a title of angels, not the son of God, but the sons of God, the angels, were singing. That's where the first worship service happened, by the way. The first music was created in heaven that the angels were singing while God was making the heavens and the earth. Think about that next time you sing a song. Pretty cool. Various types of angels surround the throne of God as you read the Old, the Old Testament and the New Testament and Revelation and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Some angels are so majestic and powerful that they inspired fear and awe. Several humans even were tempted to worship them when they saw their appearance. And other angels had a plain uh, appearance. From the angel that guarded, uh, guarded the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the angel that preaches the gospel to all creation In Revelation, angels seem to be involved between God and humanity. The Greek word for angels, angelos, means a messenger, so simply a servant, as we're going to learn here today, of the Lord to do his bidding. We're told that angels were part of the giving of the law, even. That's pretty cool. Galatians chapter 3 says a law was appointed through angels, 
Acts chapter 7, Stephen indicates that the law was delivered by angels as sort of an intermediary. And angels have appeared to various prophets. Sometimes angels have brought judgment of God. Sometimes they have brought messages of God. And I have it on good source that there are even some angels that help depressed people get, uh, get healed and they get their wings for it. And even, I think even California has a few of these angels too. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but apart from these sons of God, the angels that are in the scripture, we have this interesting appearing of, in the Old Testament surrounding a specific title called the angel of the Lord. Unique title given to an angel, well, as we'll see, not an angel at all, but a title of messenger of the Lord, unique in that whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, he is not speaking a message from God. He speaks in first person as God, right? The angel of the Lord was in the burning bush speaking to Moses about his people. The angel of God of the Lord was speaking to Abraham. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. The angel of the Lord wiped out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. The angel of the Lord, this very unique, set apart representation person in the Old Testament that speaks in first person as God. Many people believe, and I agree, that the angel of the Lord is none other than a pre-incarnate expression or appearance, should I say, of Jesus in the Old Testament, speaking in first person as God. Interestingly enough, this creates a dilemma for the Jewish theology. Because as we've learned, as we'll learn today, the Old Testament explicitly prophesies of one who will come, who is God himself, and he surpasses the angels in essence and in nature. Well, think about in the Jewish mind for a minute. How do you get above man, excuse me, how do you get above angels and lower than God? What's in the space between the angels and God? What exists there? Nothing. There is nothing there. There is no angel, you know, like half God and then full God. It's just angels and God. So what do you do when the Bible prophesies of this one who, who speaks as God when he appears and that he will be worshipped as God when he comes? So this one the scripture speaks of either has a lesser form of divinity of his own or he can be none other than God himself. In this chapter, the author argues this point by delineating between the nature of God and the authority and nature of the angels. And he puts them on a scale and weighs them out. Look at verse 4. He starts off by saying, speaking of Jesus, having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. I want you to circle that phrase, the most excellent name. It describes a transcendent dignity, a name of high authority, the mo most excellent name. That, it, that means it's the highest name. It's the highest manager, so to speak. His name is above every other name. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2? That Jesus has been given what? The name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue 
of, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you might want to note, note the word inheritance. He says, by way of inheritance, the inheritance that Hebrew descri- the Hebrews describes indicates that Jesus, by way of his very nature, was, has a position that the angels could never obtain because, they, because of their lesser position. So for the next 10 verses, he gives a contrast between the nature of Jesus and the nature of angels and how they're different and how Jesus is uniquely above the angels. You might also want to note that here the author displays his Old Testament prowess because he just goes on a quoting spree of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy to Psalms to 2 Samuel. He just goes and he preaches the gospel from the Old Testament. It's one of the most amazing pieces of literature we have. It's, it's incredible. And so, if you're taking notes, let's jump right into it. Verse 5 lays out the first contrast, and it's this. Number one, he says, Jesus is the Son, angels are the servants. Okay, you might just jot it down. Jesus is the Son, angels are the servants. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here the author quotes directly from Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7 to describe the unique characteristics of Jesus as uniquely different from the angels. I mentioned to you earlier that in the Old Testament, the angels have sometimes the title, the sons of God. But Jesus only has the title, the son of God of God, capital S. It'd be kind of like if I looked out in the audience today and I looked at all the guys and I said, hey, brother, right? You're my, I would call you brother. But when I look over there and there's my brother, like that's my brother, right? He's flesh and blood. By the way, my brother and my parents are here. So hi guys, I'm so glad they're here. Um, But he's my brother, right? So there's, I'm using the same phrase, but there's a difference of meaning. So here the author says, He never called any of the angels his son. That is a unique title that represents a unique and specific truth. There's never been an angelic being that God himself has designated as the only begotten son. You might remember when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, the spirit descended in the form of a dove, and a voice came from the majestic glory, the the father of lights, and the voice spoke, This is my beloved, what? Son, in whom I am well pleased. Those were the words that echoed from heaven. So Jesus has this unique title. He is the Son, the only Son, the only begotten Son. And I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. In the early Jewish mind, even today, the Jews understand what Jesus was claiming when he claimed to be the Son of God. They, didn't, they weren't confused as like he's, he's claiming to be some, child, some like literal birth child of, of God. No, they knew that son means DNA. Son means nature. They, they put their names like this, right? Their names were based on who their father was, Simon Barjona, right? And so these, this thought when Jesus, remember when he asked them, the Jews, and they wanted to stone him, and he's like, for what, for what reason, for what good work do you want to stone me? And what did he respond in John chapter 10? He said, uh, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, 
because you being a man make yourself God. They understood what Jesus was claiming. Before Abraham was, I am. They knew what that meant. And in this messianic psalm that the author quotes, God declares, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You might want to note the word begotten. It's something that uh, the cults of today take completely out of context. They try to use the word begotten to throw you off track. Jesus was begotten. You see, Jesus was created. He was begotten. They don't know what that word means at all. The word in the Greek literally means, and in the Septuagint of the Old Testament, it means to bring forth. To bring forth. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten, that he brought forth from heaven into humanity. Begotten is a way to describe the incarnation of Jesus. That he was eternally existent in heaven, always was, and he was begotten by being brought forth in due time, in due season, the Bible says, in a certain place, in a certain era, in a certain time, he was brought forth prophetically fulfilled. He was begotten. Today I have brought you forth. Today I have entered into humanity, into human flesh. It speaks of the fact that God in the right time, in the right place, was manifested to us in the flesh. And then he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7 to emphasize this point. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. That Old Testament passage was God speaking to David about his son Solomon. Remember Solomon? I'm going to read you from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord communicating here with David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. That's what he did with Solomon. But notice here, he shall build a house for my name, that's what Solomon did, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Let me ask you, it's not a trick question. Is Solomon's kingdom established forever? Is Solomon sitting on the throne there in Jerusalem right now? No. God switches gears on David. Yeah, your son is going to come. He's going to build a house. And then he switches gears prophetically. And through that line, the ultimate son, God's son, will come. He will build a house for the Lord, the church. I shall build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have become a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And his kingdom will last forever and have no end. That Jesus is a fulfillment of that prophecy. So Jesus is the better Solomon, the eternal son of God. But when did any angel ever receive this kind of designation from the father? Never. In fact, in verse 7, he quotes Psalm 104 where he says, the angels, he says, who make his, uh, and of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and ministers of flame of fire. In verse 14, we're told that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. In other words, angels don't have the preeminence that the son has. Jesus is the son. The angels are the servants. Contrast number two, as we build on this. Jesus is worshiped and angels are worshipers. Jesus is worshiped, and angels are worshipers. 
Verse 6 continues. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. I love this one because this is another one. Oh, see, Josh, he says firstborn. That means Jesus was born first. Jesus was created. Jesus was the first one created. You guys will hear this. Jesus was God's first created being because the Bible says he's the firstborn. Colossians says this too, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And that's important to state because what does the Bible mean by firstborn? Well, let me ask you this. Was Solomon David's firstborn? No. In fact, I think Solomon was something like David's 10th born. <laughs> Yet in Psalm 89, who gets called the firstborn by God? Solomon. He wasn't born first. No, he wasn't. He was in the position of authority. Jacob and Esau. Who was, who was the youngest? Jacob was the youngest. Esau was the firstborn. Who got the blessing of the firstborn? The youngest, the secondborn. He is the firstborn. No, he's not. He wasn't born first. That's the point. The language of firstborn is not talking about Jesus being created first. It's talking about Jesus having the preeminent authority over all things. He has the authority over heaven, over earth, over things seen, unseen, un all created. He is the inheritor of all things. Jesus is the firstborn over, over in the sense of authority, all creation. And here the author quotes from the Septuagint virgin, uh, version of Deuteronomy 32, and he incorporates Psalm 97. But this is a mind-blowing conclusion because of how he links this. He says he brought his firstborn into the earth. And then when he got there, what he's, he told the angels, worship him. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The very first commandment God gave his people, you shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean in short? I'm God, as I'll say, as he says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God besides me. The only one worthy of any worship is God and God alone. Amen? Amen? Stick with me. I know I'm probably boring some of you. Just stick with me. God and God alone is deserving of worship. I am the Lord. There is no other. And yet here we have a clear command from God in the Old Testament for the angels to worship the Son. Who is the Son? There's only one logical conclusion that can be drawn. The Son is as equal in worth and divine in nature as the Father. They are one. They aren't separated. Remember when, when in Revelation 22, when John saw the angel, and this angel was so majestic and glorious that John falls down like he's dead? And the angel, the angel he, he begins to, he's tempted to worship the angel because of his glory and his fear and his awe. In Revelation 22, we read, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So the angel is telling John, 
Don't worship me. Whatever you do, uh, don't do that to me. Worship God. What if John asked him, well, who do you worship? Well, actually, God commanded us to worship the Son. So when I say worship God, I mean God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God in full nature. And so that's another point of separation between Jesus and the angels. Third point of contrast in verses 8 and 9 is that Jesus commands and angels comply. Jesus commands and angels comply. Verse 8. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. It's true that angels surround the throne in heaven. But here he says there's only one who sits on the throne of heaven. And, his, and it's a son. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. What's amazing about this psalm's reference is it comes from Psalm 45. You might want to note that in verse 9 where it says, Therefore God, your God, in the, in the original Hebrew language, it's actually saying, that the author is saying to the subject of his writing, God, your God. He, he calls the subject of his writing, the son, God, and he says, your God. It's amazing. So we see that Jesus doesn't run with the angels. He commands the angels where to run. And, and by the way, if you're maybe sitting here processing all this and you're seeing some stark contrast with theologies that exist today, you would be right on target. These are some of the claims of the most popular, what I call pseudo-Christian cults today. And you need to know this if you don't. Mormon theology, right? Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They have this new revelation apparently from God. Which some angel brought to them named Moroni. I, I just like to take the I off that name. It's M-O-R-O-N. That's, anyway. Anyway, the, the Mormon theology would have us believe... Jesus was an angel, specifically the brother of Lucifer. And when God saw the plight of humanity, Lucifer and Jesus got in this uh, contest to see who came up with the best plan to save everything. Uh, Jesus got chosen, Lucifer got jealous, so he's kicked out of heaven, and Jesus got sent to earth. That's, that's Mormon theology. And by the way, that's good news because Jesus earned his godhood. And good news for you, you and I can be like Jesus and earn our godhood too. That's Mormon theology. Here's a quote from Mormon.org, okay? Mormon.org, the official website of the LDS Church, says, when we become humbly, oh, excuse me, when we become humble and rely on our Savior, that's good, we come to understand a great truth about ourselves, that there is an inherent divinity in each of us. And that's what they believe. Jesus was just uh, an expression of what we can one day become. As God is, so, so we can be. The Jehovah's Witnesses would have us believe that Jesus is none other than Michael the archangel incarnate. 
Here's a quote from their website, jw.org. It is logical to conclude that Michael, the archangel, is none other than Jesus Christ in his heavenly role. I'm like, is anyone reading Hebrews around here? (laughs) He, He deals with this very thing. And yet it's the same tactic of Satan to try to diminish the personhood of Jesus. You guys have seen the, the Dome of the Rock, right? The, the, the huge mosque at the top of the Temple Mount. Try to keep my opinions to myself about that thing up there. But around the top of it has a bunch of calligraphy from the, from the Quran. And it specifically says that it talks about Jesus. The son, they call it the Son of Mary. They call him the Son of Mary around the top. That the Son of Mary, he died. And then it says, and he, and, sorry, hold on. I'm trying to think of the exact language. It does not befit God and his majesty to have a son. So basically, right on there, it says, God has no son. And this Jesus is not the son of God. Why do I bring all this up? Because do you see a pattern woven through every other religious expression and view of Jesus? From the ones that look really Christian to the ones that don't? Satan doesn't care if you're religious. Satan doesn't care if he can get you on some moral social justice trip. Satan doesn't care if you do good things. I mean, he'd prefer you not to, but as long as you can do good things and leave Jesus out of it, it's okay, it's okay with him. Just don't believe Jesus for who he said he was and who he proved he was and who he really is because that's where the threat comes to Satan's kingdom of darkness. It's through the person of Jesus. And these people are becoming very good at deceiving uh, Christians. And so be careful. If they change the person of Jesus, run, run, run. The fourth contrast he offers in verses 10 through 13 is that Jesus is the creator and angels are the created. Jesus is the creator, angels are the created. Now he kicks it into overdrive. Check this out. Verse 10. Okay, before, before I read it, test, quiz. Who is the author talking about? Oh, you guys, don't do this to me. <laughs> Who is the author talking about? The main, the main subject of this chapter? Jesus. Jesus, okay. Who are, so far, all of the Old Testament references have been directed towards who? Jesus. All the Psalms, everything has been talking about this is who Jesus is. This is who Je-. So in that context, listen to what he says next. He quotes Psalm 102. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to who of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? To cap it all off, the author describes a person, Jehovah, 
capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the unspeakable name of the eternal God. He names a time in the beginning, and he names an event in action. You laid the foundations of the earth. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He jumps to the ultimate conclusion. This prophecy about the Son. Who is the Son? You, O Lord. In the beginning. Remember what John would tell us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or in 1 John when he would write, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen and heard and seen with our eyes and looked upon, or our hands have handled concerning the Word of life, that the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. If this doesn't seal the deal of convincing someone about the nature of Jesus, I really don't know what else to tell you. There might be a slight argument, still in my opinion not a good one, that the previous word used of Jesus for God could also mean a ruler or a lesser divinity. Okay, but in the context of Psalm 102, when the author says, you, Lord, are in the beginning and you laid the foundations of the earth, there's only one person he's talking about. And that's God. The one and only God. The God who said there is no, none beside me. And what angel can say that they laid the earth's foundation? That the universe is the work of their hand? That they have a life with no beginning and no end? That their years never change? Yet in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, we're told that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. The author is putting Jesus in a class above every other created being. He is not a created being. He is the eternal God. And as the eternal God is worthy of our worship, and, and I'll tell you, uh, just as a side note, it's so comforting to me when I read verses like this that tell me about the consistent nature of Jesus above time and space and matter that he's eternal, that he never changes. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've had quite enough of change um, in this world. It just never stops changing, and it doesn't seem to be ever changing in the right direction. One thing after another after another, and it's like, what, what on earth is going on? Are you going to tell me you have, a, you have a God who never changes, that you can put your hope and your trust in, you, commit, you can commit your life and your resources and your future to, you can give him your sin, your failure, your hope, your dreams, you can give him everything, and he will be consistent all the time, and you're going to put your hope in this world? That can't keep its promise for one second, that can't follow through on any of its guarantees? Now, Jesus is where we need to place our hope. And I want you to notice this language, too. I, I love this. When you think of, uh, when, you, when you do some research on the three most prevalent theories in science about how the, end, how the universe will come to an end, right? Apparently, it started with a big bang. I agree. God said, let there be, and then the bang. But... Uh, how will it end? Well, the scientists, one of the three most prevalent theories is called the Big Crunch. The theory states that once the universe stops expanding, gravity, by force, 
will cause it to literally fold in on itself and collapse in an instant. And yet David, you know, there, I don't know what he's doing. He's like playing his harp. He's out by the field playing his harp, worshiping Jesus. He's like, I'm just going to write a psalm. And he writes, and he's writing about Jesus. He doesn't even know it. And he, and he says, like a cloak, you will fold up the heavens and they will be changed. It's incredible. And so, again, systematically he goes through the Old Testament showing that Jesus has the better voice than the prophets. Jesus has the better title than the angels. He is the son. He is God come, come down, made flesh, dwelt among us. But here's where I want to end. I actually really think that chapter 2, verse 1 ought to be the last verse in chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts with a therefore, and you've, you've heard it, but it's true. Anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to see what it's therefore. And so everything that, that he makes this, this statement on that opens chapter 1 is actually his conclusion of all the things he wrote in chapter 1. Jesus has the better voice, that Jesus is the, is the express image of God, that he has the excellent glory, that he's greater than the angels, that he has this title from the Old Testament called the Son, and the Son is none other than the Lord who created heavens and earth. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore you have, you know better theology? You have some more knowledge in your head? No. Therefore, we, who's we? Those who call Jesus our Lord, our King, those who have trusted in him for our salvation. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. I believe this is a, is a true statement that as Christians, if you don't fight to stay with Jesus, there will be a natural current within the world that will take you away from him. <laughs> when you think of drifting, what does driftwood do? Does it have any intentional direction? Can you say to driftwood, go to that spot and it will intentionally focus and make its way there? No. When you drift, you drift away from something, not to something. It's, it's being untethered, being tossed to and fro. Christian, we live in an anti-Christ world. Our bodies and our sinful nature is already prone to walk away from God, to walk away from truth, to distance ourselves from the Lord. And it happens so quickly. And, and, uh, I know for me, I'm really grateful for the online ministry that we have, especially for people who are shut in or sick or on vacation or, or can't get in for some reason. But, but here's what I don't necessarily like about it. People get so comfortable not coming to church anymore. And I don't know how your nature, how, I don't know how your selfish nature is, but I'll tell you what. Have you ever like missed church for two or three weeks and thought, I could kind of get used to this. You know, laying in my jammies, getting some coffee, you know, watching church online, got other things, you know. That's one little sliver of what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is we have a nature that is just, we have this proclivity to drift. Unless we have an intentional focus towards the things of God, that we drive ourselves, that we die to ourselves, that we crucify our flesh, and we intentionally 
keep our priority on Christ. And I want to tell you, the voices of man-made religion and worldly temptation and comfort and ease and the flesh are continually trying to move us away from the intention and the plan that God has for our lives. But notice, he says, don't just heed. Give the more earnest heed. In other words, it's language of prioritization. If Jesus is this one, if Jesus did come from heaven to earth, if Jesus conquered death forever, there is no higher priority for the Christian to pursue than Christ. That might offend some. I know it offends me, but I didn't write it. It is written to me. Take the more earnest heed to the things you have heard. For if you don't, you will drift. And if you drift, you will drift towards destruction. I think the audience, the message he's giving to his audience is, if the forefathers heeded the prophets and heeded the angels... How much more do we need to heed the Son of God who came and gave his life for us? Warren Wearsby gives a beautiful commentary. I don't have a slide for it, but maybe just listen to this. He says, More spiritual problems are caused by neglect, perhaps, than by any other failure on our part. We neglect God's word, we neglect prayer, we neglect worship with God's people. We neglect opportunities for spiritual growth, and as a result, we start to drift. The anchor does not move. We do. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is here. He's an anchor for our soul. But we are distracted, and we drift, and we get our priorities messed up, and we get, we get all shaken up, and we forget who Jesus is. We, we're not thinking about his glory and his splendor and his sacrifice. And we begin to drift away from the anchor. And I think that this one verse, therefore, let us, take, let us give the more earnest heed to the things which we have received, lest we drift away, is just as relevant to you and I in our culture today than it was, as it was to the Hebrews in the audience that he was writing today. It's just as relevant it would even feel more so to us today. It'd be why? Because we are, we, are, we are being pulled right now, church. We are being pulled in every direction. The world, the devil, the flesh is pulling us. It's pulling us. It's pulling us. And now is the time for us to give the more earnest heed to the things of God. And I want to be careful I'm not being legalistic. I'm not trying to set a guilt trip. I believe, though, that there is no way the church of Jesus Christ, let me rephrase this. The true church of Jesus Christ will always win. Okay, that, that's, that's established. But what's going to happen when we're shaken? What's going to happen when the pressing comes? If we are not prepared with our priorities now to give the more earnest attention and take the more earnest heed to the things that we have in the Lord. I love that verse. 
in Hebrews chapter 10. It's been used a lot over COVID, right? Do not forsake the assembling together as is a manner of some, right? I love that. I love that. I've preached on that so many times. We got to meet. It's the imperative of the church to gather together, to worship the Lord, to not close their doors. We're not, we're not being driven by fear. We're, not, we're being driven by faith. We trust in the king who's over it all. He's got it. But sometimes we don't like the second half of that verse. Let us not forsake the assembling together as a manner of some, but even more so as you see the day approaching. So the same verse that says we ought to get together and meet on Sundays is the same verse that says, oh yeah, and you ought to do it more than you're doing. More than just Sunday. Now is the time we need house-to-house prayer. We need G3 groups. We need people gathering together for the intent purpose of seeking the Lord and encouraging one another to love and good works and say, focus, times are getting tough. Distractions are high. The world is pulling. Idolatry is running wild. Fear is running wild. Everything's crazy. No one knows their right hand from their left, up from down. But you know Jesus. Keep going, brother. Keep going, sister. Let's focus on the mission of Christ. We need that more, lest we drift. You might recall one of the famous hymns that we still sing today. It's many people's favorite. Come thou fount of every blessing. One of the famous lines in the song is, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Take, uh, seal it for thy courts above, right? You almost get that the author is in this internal struggle in his own human nature. The composer, Robert Robinson, was converted under the preaching of George Whitfield. But later, after he had written hymns and been a preacher, he drifted from the Lord. And to try to answer his ongoing questions and soul-searching, he started traveling various places. And on one of his travels, he met a very spiritually-minded young woman who began to talk to him and engage in a conversation with him. And randomly, she asked him, I was wondering if you could give me your thoughts on the meaning of these words of this hymn I've been reading and singing. And she pulled it out and gave it to him. And of course, it was Come Thou Fount, the one that he wrote. And he tried to avoid her questions and he tried to steer the conversation in a different direction. But finally, he fessed up. Yeah, I wrote this. And I haven't been walking with God. And as the story is recorded, that young lady looked at him and responded, but the streams of mercy that never cease are still flowing. And it, and it, and it said that that was a turning point in his relationship back to the Lord. I wonder in conclusion if there's those in here who have drifted. You know, it's not that you don't see Jesus anymore there. It's not that he's somehow not a, some part of your life, but you just feel like, I've, I'm, I'm getting off course. I haven't given attention and heed to my spiritual life. I, I've let some sin reign in my body, and I've let some other things really tear my affections, and I've let some questions cause me to get bitter and confused and some experiences to harbor something against God. Maybe there are these questions in your mind and you're drifting. 
I believe it's not an accident that the Lord would call you here today, not just to hear about a theology of angels, but to recognize they're still an anchor and he never changes. His love for you is the same. His mercy towards you is the same. You can always come back to him from wherever you've gone as your point of reference and you can always come right back to that place. I love this. Um, it was recently Pastor Appreciation Month, and I, uh, by the way, if I don't get a chance to thank each one of you, I want to say thank you for the many cards that you guys sent and the words of encouragement that you wrote. That meant the world more than you'll ever know. But this is one of my favorites. I just got this from a family in our church whose daughter made me a, a card there. It has a little owl on it, and it said, whoo, loves their pastor. And then it says, I do. It's loving <laughs> But let me, read, let me read this to you from Brooke. Dear Pastor, thank you for sharing God's word, and I appreciate you because you are kind and pray with others. I like it when you tell stories. At least someone does. Um, but here's, here's, I'm praying for you to not give up. Your friend, Brooke. We could all take a lesson, can't we? Don't give up. It's just starting. Even if you've had your whole life, God is at work. There are special things he's doing. Don't give up. Don't drift. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unique way that you have expressed your truth to us in this book that we call the Bible. It amazes me as I read this. I'm so insufficient to communicate such radical truths. But to read how the Old Testament just preached Jesus, preached the Son, preached the incarnation, preached your divinity, preached your sacrifice, so that we today could trust in this gospel by faith. And to know that our hope is sure and steadfast, secured in heaven through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And Lord, I just want to ask that you would encourage every soul here today, every heart here today who maybe is being tempted to drift, that they would anchor themselves back in the unchanging God. And Lord, with all the different ideas out there that are floating around the spiritual ideas, all the strange doctrines, we pray that we would be anchored again in Jesus Christ. You are better, you are higher, you are greater than all. And we need more of you in our lives, Lord. As every head is bowed and eyes are closed, you might ask yourself the question today, why on earth should I give my life to this Jesus? And I'd like for your consideration to flip the question on you. I'd like to ask you, why wouldn't you want to give your life to Jesus? Is your next job promotion going to give you peace with God? Is your next paycheck your next car, your next boat, your next vacation, 
going to erase all the shame and guilt you have over your sin? At the end of your life, when everything that you've obtained and fought for and lived for and is just a passing blip on the radar as your life comes to an end, are you going to have the confidence that your, ha- that your eternity is in the secure hands of Jesus who paid the ultimate price for your life on the cross and who conquered death forever by rising from the dead? Do you know that? I would challenge you, whatever you've given your life to, because everyone worships something and everyone's given their life to someone. It doesn't compare to Jesus. And I would like to suggest to you that until you find Jesus, nothing else will truly make sense. Because you were created for him. And I assume too frequently that every person that comes to church on Sunday knows Jesus in this way. But I've been far too wrong in that so many times. If you don't know Jesus in this way, if you've never trusted upon him and only him, for your salvation, if you've never called out to him and confessed your sin and asked for his forgiveness, if you don't even know if you would go to heaven when you died, even if you've been going to church for 20 years, the Bible says these things were written that you would know that you have eternal life. Do you want to be confident in your relationship with God? I would call you to make a decision to say yes to the call of Jesus today, to know him, to accept him by faith, to believe and trust in him, to give him your life. Anyone at all, I don't even want you to hesitate. I don't want you to think about what other people are thinking. If you need Jesus in your life, you are not here by accident. I want you to stand up wherever you're at right now, and I want you to make a bold decision to invite Jesus into your life today. Anyone at all? I'm just going to give a moment. Anyone would, would want to say yes to Jesus today? I know it takes courage. I know it's not easy, but I'm just going to give an opportunity. Okay. I always like to give that opportunity. Lord, we thank you, God, for your love for us again. And would you go before us this week? Would you give us your joy, your peace, your strength? And go, go out, Lord. May we go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And may you accomplish your perfect will in and through our lives. We ask you this all in the mighty, truly name above every name, Son of God, Jesus Christ. And all God's people agreed and said, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. And please, if you would join us tonight at 6 o'clock, 6 to 7, uh, for an evening of prayer, we'd love that.